You're listening to the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Remember to like, share, comment, subscribe, and click the bell to make sure you get the latest episodes of the podcast. Be sure to like and share our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. <laughs> now that's the talking about yourself bit done, Mike, and let's get into this cricket discussion. I chose some topics to talk about and discuss with you today for this um, chat that we're having. And the first one is broadcasting within cricket and how it's evolved and changed over the generation years and up until the present day. Now, back in the old days, Mike, as you would know in your time, but even before your time in the real early days of the game, um, it was very different how the game was covered and broadcasted. Uh, journalists used to carry big typewriters around and used to carry their wisdom almanacs, uh, mm. trying to get player stats as a guide, etc. And And now we have the internet and phones and computers to do that now. And then before television, those movie tone reels that you used to have back in the day uh, to describe the cricket and uh, the announcers will uh, describe the cricket in their grand voices as they, as they do. Just a wonderful period of time. And uh, during the 1930s, the ABC had to improvise because of uh, the, the, the problems they had broadcasting test matches in England for Australia during that time. They had to come up with the idea of synthetic cricket broadcasts, which was using sound effects to um, imitate the crowd and the bat um, hitting the ball, which was basically done by a commentator <laughs> with a pencil, which is up against a table. So the ABC felt compelled. They had to reveal this because they felt it was a bit deceitful. And they said it was all made up. And uh, this is how we did it, the trickery of it. But you don't have to do that anymore these days, Mike, because technology is so much improved. And, and during your time in the 70s, the revolution, Kerry Packers, World Series Cricket, Channel 9 changed how the game was broadcasted from the establishment because uh, the ABC had the, the rights to Australian cricket for a very long time up until that point. Uh, and they brought in cameras at both ends of the ground instead of one and stump mics and stump cam as we see today. So it's come a long way how the game's broadcasted on TV, radio, and even in your field, um, of journalism and, and how the game's uh, written, Mike. So what differences have you noticed from your time in the media covering cricket from when you started until now? Well, you're right that it's, it's broadcast very differently, but I don't think it's broadcast any better. Um, in fact, I, yeah, it's a good question, Jack. Um, technically, yes, it's magnificent. Uh, there's no doubt about that, both on radio and um, television. Um, technically, it's outstanding. Where I think the failing has come is through commentary for two reasons. Um, some former players uh, are natural broadcasters, but many of them aren't. Um, and because of their reputation as cricketers, they're not produced. And I think this is one of the real weaknesses. They're allowed to run their race. And even the ones that are good are not produced. Uh, Shane Warne and Ricky Ponting are both outstanding um, with their knowledge, but they speak so quickly. Um, it's, Ponting is incredible. I mean, he's, mm. he just speaks so quickly that you can't absorb everything that he's saying. And invariably, he's right. I mean, he calls, he broadcasts as a captain, so he's a step ahead of the game, yeah. which brings you as the watcher 
ahead of the game, which is a terrific privilege. Um, but if he'd only slow down, but nobody would tell him. To, I told him four years ago to slow down, and that was dismissed straight through to the keeper. Um, it's not. As, it's not as though that he doesn't listen. It's just. Um, it's just the way he is. And Warren was the same. And Shane had tremendous. Uh, I mean, he would have been a brilliant captain if he could have got other aspects of his um, demeanour and personality yeah. in order. <coughs> he was. Um, just strategically and tactically, he was very, very clever uh, and very, very smart, like many slow bowlers are, by, by instinct, by nature. Um, so, I, I, admittedly, I'm a bit of the old school, you know, I, of the traditional broadcaster. And, yeah. I mean, McGilvray was a fine broadcaster, but it, certainly he played for New South Wales and was, a, you know, a fine cricketer. Uh, Jimmy Maxwell has succeeded him with great distinction. Uh, Jonathan Agnew was a fast bowler, played briefly for England and for Leicestershire. Um, but I think perhaps it's because it's the romantic in me that looks back on the days of John Arlott and Brian Johnson. Uh, and then, of course, in the uh, uh, West Indies when you had Tony Cozier, who I had the great fortune to work with a number of times, uh, Reg Pereira. Um, you know, it's uh, Vasant Raji in India and others, uh, Rajan Bala. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I, I, some cricketers make good broadcasters, but just because you're a good cricketer doesn't make you a good broadcaster. Yeah. Um, Harsha Bogle is the interesting one because he's managed uh, to, um, to make a very fine career as a broadcaster. Um, yet he wasn't a cricketer of uh, at all, really. I mean, he, he played the game, obviously, but he was more interested in getting his MBA and, and diversifying his business interests or one thing or other and celebrating a game that he loved. Um, and I respect Harsher enormously for that. Um, and he's one of very few broadcasters now that, um, that, that would be seen as a professional broadcaster rather than as a cricketer who... Uh, I mean, some are very, very good, but I think um, there's too many, and it's not only in cricket, it's in other sports as well. They've all become so dependent on the personality rather than the professional broadcaster. Yeah. And um, there's, there's virtually no opportunity now for young um, broadcasters to, to come through the system because it's dominated by former players. Yeah, um, and... Um... Do you think we're we're going to see more um, uh, non-playing commentators in the future, or basically that is not? I don't think. Be I think that it's all personality driven. It's all, uh, and as I said, the best, like um, you know, David Gower was exceptional. Uh, Michael Atherton is just incomparable, and that's wonderful. You know, more power to them. Um, but uh, let's let's make sure that we get the very best and get them for their ability away from the ground and not just because they are good in the middle of it. We want, uh, I mean, Atherton was exceptional. I mean, Atherton wasn't, uh, I can assure you, because I dealt a lot with him as a journalist. He wasn't, when he was captain, he wasn't the easiest man in the world to deal with. Um, he could be very blunt and very obdurate, um, and, of course, he had his moments of high controversy as well. Um, but he's a beautiful writer of the game, 
beautiful writer for the Times. Um, he's as good as anyone going around, both as a broadcaster and as a writer. And that revives memories of John Arlott. I mean, Arlott was the incomparable broadcaster, but he was also a beautiful writer for The Guardian. Um, you know, people always talk about the beauty of Sir Neville Cardis, and, and, and Cardis did write beautifully. Um, but I found him to be very, very florid because um, he, he wrote beautifully on music as well. Uh, Cardis, who, who lived and worked in Sydney for, for a period back in the day. But I was always a strong Arlott man, um, you know, and he, he always said he was once 12th man for um, Hampshire because no one else was available. Um, and that was the extent um, of his cricket past. Um, but, you know, he, uh, he was loved by players. He wasn't particularly fond of Australian players. He, a few he were. Uh, but Botham, uh, Ian Botham was a great admirer, particularly, and flew to the uh, when uh, Arlott died uh, to the island of Alderney in the English Channel uh, for the funeral. Um, uh, you know, a number of players were there, and particularly Botham. So, yeah, you know, I, I get a bit tied up in all of this. Probably I'm a bit of the old school, Jack. I try to, to, to embrace what's happening. You know, you, yeah. you, you can't be stuck in another time. Um, you know, it's, I've got a, a host of godchildren who make sure that I don't uh, get stuck in another time. But with the broadcasting, um, I, I would like to think that uh, some more professional broadcasters could come through, but I think it's highly unlikely. Yeah, um, but there was one master at cricket commentary, the art of it, and that was the great Richie Benno. Um, and you would had many encounters with him over the years, Mike, in the press box, Richie. Yeah, indeed. Um, his I style was, was his own and it worked. Um, he kept it simple, it valued the importance of the pause and the silence, which usually will terrify his other commentators next to him because he wouldn't <laughs> say anything for a bit. Um, should I speak or should I not? But that's what he did. And he let the pitchers do the talking. He said very few words to describe what was happening. Um, and his impact as a as a player and as a great captain and as a great all-round cricketer he was, which people forget because uh, they mainly remember him for his commentary. But um, his impact that he's had on the game is lasted, it has lasted, um, has a lasting impact, I should say. And many people still, you know, repeat his famous lines like marvellous and two for two, 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 and, yeah, and all people that. dress up like him, like the Richies do, and yeah. <laughs> every year, idolise the great man in beige. Um, so, Mike, what can the current-day commentators learn from Richie and, for, for, and those who have gone before him? And what are your memories of dealing with Richie Benner? Yeah, it's a good question. Um he had a, I mean, it, go back to 1972, my first tour, um, and I was doing it for AAP, <coughs> excuse me, um, the, so the pressure. Um, for, for people out there who don't understand the work of the agency, it's like sort of Crick Info now, pushing material out every minute of the day. We didn't have to push it out every minute in those days. We did have to push it out every five or ten minutes. So it's what we called running copy. So it was pretty full on. 
And if you had a, a, a dramatic day um, with a heck of a lot happening, it, be, it became frantic. And, of course, that test match in uh, Lords in 1972, certainly a heck of a lot happened. And uh, Bob Massey, the swing bowler, took 16 for 137, two lots of eight in the most astonishing uh, performance of swing bowling that you've ever seen. Um, and so I was absolutely flat chat. I had a copy boy who could help. He was on the phone. I was typing, giving him stuff to, to push out. And, um, and then suddenly there at my side was Richie Benno. Now, Richie may have known of me, but I think it's highly improbable because um, I'd come from Adelaide to Melbourne, then Melbourne to – I certainly hadn't met him at that stage. He would have known that I had got the AAP job. Um, but anyway, he, suddenly he was at my side and he said, are you okay? You're managing all right. Is there anything I can do? And then I thought, well, you know, I said, no, Rich, thank you. I, it's under control. But when you think of that, here is the most senior figure in Australian media, cricket media, and a former Australian captain and a very distinguished one who, who revived the game with Frank Worrell in 1960-61, uh, re re revived Test Match cricket. Um, there he is talking to, I was what then, 25? Yeah, I was 25. Um, uh, you know, he's saying, are you okay? Are you managing all right? Is there anything I can do? Well, you don't forget things like that. Mm. I mean, that, you know, it talks about Richie's leadership skills, talks about his humanity, talks about, um, you know, his openness. Um, and there was a shyness about Richie too. There was a shyness about him. Um, and, uh, you know, I was incredibly grateful for that and stayed in contact with him over many years. And I'm still... Now, in fact, I've got um, lunch with his widow, Daphne, on September the 7th, and I still see Daphne socially, um, and, um, and his brother, John, you know, who was a very fine cricketer himself. So, you know, we catch up periodically through the year, and the, as you can imagine, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of memories uh, to talk about. So, yeah, I've, I, I respected uh, uh, Richie enormously, and... Um, and from that very first meeting, uh, how generous he was with that. And that was pretty, <coughs> excuse me, characteristic of him, um, that he was a very generous man, very giving man. As quiet yeah, as he was, you know, it, there was plenty to give. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we used to see female broadcasters coming into cricket now, Mike, um, in a male-dominated profession. We see more and more writing about the game and commentating. Uh, both men's and women's cricket. So how do you see the future of uh, the female broadcasters within the game? Well, if, if, if they um, advance as rapidly as women's cricket has, they're going to, <laughs> they're going to have a very significant role. Um, I mean, this has been one of the most dramatic developments um, in the evolution of the game over the last um, 10 to 15 years, I suppose. Uh, women's cricket, the advances it has made, has been outstanding. In fact, it's been a little bit interesting with the, all the hysteria recently with the Matildas development um, and good luck to them. And it would, it, certainly the country was captivated by what they've achieved. But I, 
I just thought that, you know, while I wouldn't say it was hysterical, but I, I think that the, the, the cricket girls really were uh, women, I should say. I'll get into all sorts of trouble saying girls, won't I? The, the Australian women's cricketers um, have really shown the way. Uh, they have been outstanding now for, what, 10, 15, close to 20 years. They've been incomparable. And um, the ratings they have got on television and one thing or other has been exceptional. And I think to some degree, the Matildas, as fine as they are, have fed off the success um, of the, the women cricketers to a large degree. It do doesn't really matter because it's, it's a period of excitement for women's sport generally. Uh, the NFL is doing well. The women's AFL, which resumes um, this week, um, is doing well. And it's a wonderful thing for women's sport and the funding that at last is starting to come through. And as a consequence of that, of course, we're going to get more women uh, broadcasting. And we've got some very good ones already. Uh, Mel Jones is outstanding. Um, um, Lisa Strathlaker um, is outstanding. Um, you know, uh, in, 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 in local football, uh, Kelly Underwood you know, does an extremely good job. I mean, just not, we could list a number. Um, but yes, the, I think they will continue to play a very good, uh, a very good part, and it, it'll take time. I mean, some of the hard-nosed, particularly hard-nosed football followers, find it difficult to cope with a female voice. But the um, it should be based on knowledge. If they've got the knowledge and they can share that knowledge and share an insight, which good broadcasters do. Uh, they will continue to prosper, and good luck to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we move on to our next topic, Mike, uh, just to finish up um, on this topic here, uh, any tips and advice you would give to young journalists and young broadcasters out there? We may have some who may be listening today that want to gain some knowledge. So any tips? Oh, <clears throat> passion. Got to be passionate. Got to care. Um, you know, it's one thing to enjoy a game, but you really to you've got to be passionate. I believe in that, um, particularly in the writing. And your writing, <clears throat> it comes through when you're writing. If you care deeply enough, it'll be reflected in what you what you write. Um, <clears throat> I, I think the hard thing now for any any youngsters coming into it. Um, is the versatility that's required for journal to, to come into journalism itself. They have to have the ability uh, to report, to write, um, to do video, to edit. Uh, it's the multi-skilling that, uh, that is um, just so important. Um, you know, it's still useful to have shorthand as a, a, as a trick of the trade. Uh, although, of course, nowadays everybody's got the tape recorders and it saved me because my shorthand was very modest, to say the least, but uh, to have the tape recorders there and that sort of thing. Um, but no, I, what I don't want to do is discourage anyone, anyone who's got ambition. You want to give them, but I think it's it's so tough now to get into the industry. It's, it's Generally, you've got to have some sort of... Um, tertiary qualification um, 
but I still believe that if you're passionate enough, it is achievable. You know, somebody coming through could work in a country paper or country radio station just to get a foot in the door. Um, if they're prepared to do the hard yards, I still think it's achievable. It's tougher than it ever was because, unfortunately, Jack, from a newspaper point of view anyway, it is a collapsing industry. It's it's regressing. Um, there's so many different ways to deliver it. Um, but if you've got a high level of IT skills and things like that, you know, there's no reason why it's it can't be achieved. But it, it's, there's no point in saying, you know, it's within the reach of everyone because clearly it's not. It's tough. It's always been tough and really tough now. But if you care enough, passionate enough, I think it's still achievable. I think that's uh, pretty good advice there, Mike. Um Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed hearing Mike and I discuss broadcasting within cricket.